Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. to Will, Will Sunday, who's very kindly offered to chair the event. He sat over there, and uh, so without much further ado, I'll pass you over to you, Will. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, when Rob asked me to talk about rubbish, I kind of went, what do you think of my work? Or, you know, the <laughs> but actually when, when the debates got out there, it's become quite a hot topic. Um, but ultimately, it's quite levelling, I think. It's quite an accessible one. We don't have to be designers, architects, creatives to talk about it. We all talk rubbish, some more than others. We all create rubbish, some less than others, like Anders, and he'll wax lyrically about his little jar of uh, non-recyclable goods later, I'm sure. Um, but I guess the way that Rob and I got talking about it is the, the uh, turning circle dependence of our developments and the need to accommodate these... 200,000 30-ton trucks. Um, you can make these beautiful schemes permeable, work with active travel, build in biodiversity, sustainability, and then the transport guy comes along and says, you've got to get the sweat path for this big fucker in it. And the asphalt comes back out and all the sustainability goes out the window. But also, you know, we've got bins scattering our streets, cluttering our streets of different colours. Some might want them brick kind of plastic clad to blend in with the Georgian terraces. Some might want them pink to stand out like the beautiful ones of Tower Hamlet, some might think. Um, I know I've got four bin receptacles at home in Peckham that clutter the streets, and then you've got to think about bin day when there's someone of elder, elderly or um, less able trying to get down and negotiate the clutter. Um, so <clears throat> I think ultimately it's sort of, we're going to open the floor, um, I'm going to start with you, David, and kind of your bin lorry effect report was sort of the, the catalyst for the conversation, I think, when I started looking at why these, these things have to dominate our schemes. Um, and then we'll go from there, and anyone else can jump in as they please. How about now? There we go. That's better. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, I guess probably just talk about like why I actually wrote it in the first place um so I guess we're talking rubbish I wrote a load of rubbish on the way to cricket on a train um last year and we I mean the story behind it was we're looking at um a site which I won't name where it is but we're designing it and basically you know the urban design has done a lovely job it's very permeable you know got some nice you know, good density in there good number of homes it's very different to the, the existing plan which we were kind of trying to improve on and then as Will said, you know, we sort of panned it over, got the, uh, the highways in to have a look. And very quickly, they're like, oh, you can't have that. No, you've got to overlook um, this, this uh, nice kind of like green that we created. So we'll flip the houses. 
um, we can't have that house there because we've got to have a big road coming in. So we, we quickly lost about sort of 20% of the density, um, add some turning heads into it. And, you know, before too long, we were just sort of tearing our hair out. And, I mean, I, I got into urban design. I've got a very weird background. Um, I used to be in the military, used to fly helicopters. And I am very passionate about sustainability and air pollution. So these are kind of my the two things. And, you know, I get the whole argument of, if you have density of place and if we can kind of have a slightly more intense towns and cities we live in, um, then we can have more sustainable travel, there's more walking, there's more cycling, there's more shops and businesses, you know, that are on your doorstep. Um, and just saw how, you know, we spend all this time designing good places that are trying to conform to all of this and are trying to achieve these principles. And then as soon as you get to highways, and I'd also, maybe we'll go on to it later, add you know, traffic and, and modelling to that, it all just suddenly becomes a, a black and white, a yes or no decision. And you know, the why is helpful, the what is helpful, but like, let's, let's start working on the how. Um, so I was looking at, okay, who, who are the sort of the, the big baddies we're trying to tackle here? There's, there's highways, but that's, that's coming from guidance. Okay, so we can look at carrying distances. You know, what, why is it that we're um, designing places based on you, know, you being able to walk 10 meters or someone being able to walk 10 meters to drop something in a bin. Um, we're looking at uh, secure by design. Um, why do you need to um, be able to see your car um, in, in your lounge? Why, why, you know, why does someone always have to be watching your own car? You know, technology's moved on, safety's moved on, but actually that's massively affecting being able to create a square or being able to create a street that you would, you'd want to live in or you, you know, you'd want your kids to play in because actually um, the space your kids to play in is now actually just space to park cars. Um, what my other top themes? Oh, and, and then obviously breaking urbanism and, you know, ending up with these really wide kind of sweeping bends, um, which are basically there because you need the sweat path analysis of these massive bin lorries, which come there once every fortnight. And I guess that I'll probably end on this, but it's why are we designing a place for a fortnightly event as opposed to designing a place that, you know, you, I, our children will experience every day. Chloe, Jazz, I think it'd be interesting to come to you both from, uh, you've worked at the council and you've been working at the big boys and now you're both working in the more kind of nitty kind of backstreet sites, the innovation, and you're both hitting the hurdles of the bin truck man again. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to open with a pun. Um, <laughs> I've uh, spent, I've wasted a lot of time working on schemes as a result of uh, a lot of bin guidance. Um, the the schemes have become has-beens. Um, sorry. <laughs> Try and pack as many puns in as I can. Bin bingo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, so the, the big thing for me that came to the forefront of my mind was I've worked on a lot of uh, smaller sites over the course of the last five years, uh, focusing a lot on old garage sites, which are panhandles, which have very long access roads. And the schemes that I've had, that I've been working on, you basically get into a catch-22 where you can't do anything because the panhandle is so long that the access for the refuse truck to come and pick it up versus the building regs distance from where you can stop, where you can take your refuse to be collected means that you've done absolutely everything to jump over every other single hurdle with the planning officer. And I'm sure everybody else has got similar similar experiences in the room and you're like seriously is this the one thing that we can't get over and it's because it's it's written down there's these distances and 100% I get why the ones for the refuse collectors are there for health and safety reasons but it's just maddening 
Um, and it's just kind of, why are we designing these schemes for bins, or so, in some cases, not able to design the schemes for bins, when we should be incentivizing people not throwing things away? And is there something that we can do? We were just talking it before kind of we all sat down. It's just kind of, there's, is it possible to come up with like the plastic bag tax? You know, people don't associate throwing things away with it costing money. It's just you throw it away, it's free. You can throw as much as you like away. It, is there something that you can simply do that just actually, we don't incentivize people minimizing their waste? Anyway, that's just my opening statement. Jazz, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I can jump in. Um, hi, everyone. So I made the decision earlier um, to not try and integrate any um, bin puns because Chloe's been smashing them out on uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, any any sort of social media. She's bin pun queen, really. Um, so that was one deal I made myself. The other thing I thought is that I'm not going to try to dwell too much on my home bin situation. Um, so I live in a street in Camberwell where um, you can't actually walk down the street because it's overridden with bins. Uh, a street in Southwark, and um, it's, a, it's a it's a row of um, four or five story uh, Victorian townhouses, and so there are far too many bins uh, for what used to be sort of single homes are now subdivided into flats, and so the street has about three times as many bins as it was de designed for. Um, and uh, I, so those are two things I'm not going to complain too much about, but I think trying to think about bins and, and how we can sort of integrate that into a wider discussion about our relationship with public realm, quality of housing. Um, this, we have a kind of very odd relationship, uh, I think, in, in British culture with bin, bin management. And um, I think it, it sort of speaks to a wider philosophy about how we approach our public realm in, in sort of three, three ways. Um, the first, I think, it's, it's a a little bit sort of it demonstrates our obsession with an overly bureaucratic um, way of managing spaces which we've heard about uh, previously um, whereby a lot of things are decided at a sort of national diktat level and then handed down to local authorities rather than sort of empowering and embodying local authorities to come up with their own rules and regulations um, so, so planning legislation is littered with what I call sort of zombie guidance where you have rules and regulations from the 60s, 70s, 80s that just don't die. Um, so I'd, I'd, maybe I can have a show of hands for anyone who's heard of uh, Design Bulletin 32. <laughs> so um, only I think there's two hands, but it kind of, I can assure you it governs uh, every, everybody's life in here. It's the, the most famous guidance that no one's ever heard of. And um, it sets out all these rules and regulations about turning heads, um, turning circles, things like that. And it, it basically prevents good design. No, no other piece of legislation has done more to kind of undermine good architecture and urbanism than that. And it, it just doesn't, even though things are sort of wildly different from when it was first invented in the 90s, it, it just doesn't go away. Um, and the, 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 second, the second ingredient I talk about is in the UK, we kind of sort of under, we have a lack of investment in strategic planning. Um, we, we don't really do infrastructure planning very well at all. And, and that involves everything from waste management to transport. Uh, and then the third, the third kind of ingredient is, I'd, I'd say we, we, 
we we don't have a culture in which um, is a singular design-led vision about what the public realm is, who it's for, and 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 what it's there for. So by default, it gets sort of designed by rules and regulations rather than having a, a sort of singular vision that's design-led. It sort of falls over to the engineers. Um, and this kind of myopia, um, it's, it's very much... Um, I, I do think it's a kind of oddly British thing where we have just enough care for our public realm that we invent all these rules and regulations that we stringently have to work to, but then not enough care that we want that those rules to amount to something that's practical, functional, or beautiful. Um, and I just end by saying that maybe we we kind of need to look to like European neighbours or or um, European ideas of, of of a better way to do things. So possibly uh, Malmo and, and Hammerby or, or Nordhaven in Copenhagen, and of course, um, Peppa Pig World in, 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 in the UK. <laughs> but what a, just chucking it the other way, what about the poor bin men? They, aren't they our superheroes of the lockdown? Haven't they been carrying on retired, rentless, relentlessly picking up our relent, endless Amazon parcels, all of our tat, all of the DIY work we've been doing while buying puppies and having babies? Surely they should be valued. They're not just them. What if they were Instagram sensations? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we value them more? You know, Anders is a, a recycling hero of Hackney. He's reduced his uh, unrecyclable waste down to one jam jar a month, I think. And perhaps you want to go into a bit more detail about that? Right. Um, I'm not a hero, though, first. Um, I'm, I'm, I used to be a recycling manager until about a month ago. I'm now a sustainability manager for Hackney Council. So all of this planning thing is quite normal area. So I'm going to go through the behavior aspect of things. Um, in 2018, I decided to do zero waste. I went to the incinerator, which actually I was there today doing a documentary because I want to make sure that people can see the huge amount of waste that we produce. Um, it's a constant thing. It's 20, 24 hours, 7, and all 365 days of the year. It's constant. The waste is there, and it's, it's to do with the linear economy. So it's been mentioned about, can we reduce this? Um, so having, having actually challenged myself to reduce as much waste as possible, um, I was fine. I thought I was recycling quite a lot. But then I, I, I was recycling manager back then, and I decided... I'm really good at recycling and you expect it, being a recycling manager, but I really want to really open up the bin to see whether I can find something I should have reduced or recycled. And I did actually find a lot of things that I should have recycled. It could have been my husband, so I'm going to blame him, not me. Um, and he can't defend himself. He might not watch the industry. Okay, but maybe not. Um, and so I looked at it and then I basically went to the generator and then I have a light bulb moment. I was actually a little bit horrified to see that much of waste. I think the council needs to be better at that education, but it's down to cost and, and resources. We're not really good at communication because it's down to costs. So if anyone has got any free spare money to work with us, we will take your in-kind support. Um, but what really just en enlightened me and it kind of gave me, support me that light bulb moment was that if I spent the following year, 2018, going as zero waste as possible. Zero waste is not possible. Um, so some people hate that term, other people love it because it's zero, net zero. Net zero doesn't mean net zero, it means as close to net zero. So in terms of zero waste, when I looked at it, um, I, I went through a lot of change personally in my lifestyle. 
Um, I was annoying to specific people at work. Some people are here. Uh, to my family and friends, I was the preaching guy. You know, everyone hates. Um, I calmed down a lot. I was the, the zero waste police at the end of the year, but then I, I did calm down a bit. Um, so saying this, um, I don't expect everyone to go through this. So everyone will carry on producing waste. We deal with the, with the waste collections on a daily basis. Only um, like last year, we choice architecture. So we actually just reduced collections and improved our communications on recycling weekly. We have improved um, uh, the recycling rate. This come from 27 to 30. It seems like it's such a tiny amount, but that took a lot of investment and a lot of co coordination in the team. And not just that, a lot of support politically. Councillors are really um, scared to go down the route of, of changing things that might actually impact people's um, uh, like views of the council tax. And actually, the first thing people said, I pay my council tax, can you give me my waste collections? I pay, actually, council tax only pays 10% of the total cost of the council anyway. The rest is probably parking. I'm only kidding. Um, the rest comes from the government, parking, and other the commercial um, revenues. So I think I went on a tangent there. But basically, <laughs> I deal with my own waste, but I can see how difficult that, that would be for everyone else. And what we need to do is we all, hopefully today, we can all take something from here that everyone can reduce the waste. The first thing you should do is just go to your kitchen. Don't tell your husband, your wife, your mom or, or dad. Don't, don't tell them. Just open it. Spread it all around the floor and see what you find. And if you're not sure, tweet me and I'll tell you whether it's recyclable or not. Or not. And if something offensive, obviously don't tweet it. Um, but basically open it, check it was recyclable, what you could have avoided. And can you refill it? Can you reuse it? Can you not even buy it? Um, you'll be better off. You'll probably eat better health. Uh, you'll have pro probably better nutrition if you're not allowed to buy processed food because it comes in unrecyclable packaging. Um, it's not very popular to tell people what to do, um, so I'm not, but I just did a little bit. Um, and dealing with residents is our, in a way, daily pain, but also our daily gains because we learn a lot from them. And this is the first time I, I've been surrounded by so many architects or whoever, if not architects, friends of the architects, whoever. Um, I only been in meetings with two architects once, I, uh, and they were crying, as, as you said, because they couldn't develop that building because the dragging distance of the beam was more than 20 meters. Um, and I, I don't know what happened to it. Probably there was less flats being built um, because we have to put the beanstalk closer to the road so the vehicle could go in. Um, and that's not my fault. That isn't the policy. So should we change the policy? I, I will. I wouldn't agree to that just yet. <laughs> I need you to convince me, but I can't change it myself anyway. I can pass up feedback. Kenny, you work with communities. You empower people to make changes they want. You were just telling me about the resistance going on in Newham right now on Saturday. There's a, a big protest with people challenging the system. Do we need them to challenge the bin system? Yeah, I mean, before that, with the architects in the room and those you know, plans out there, there, there is this moment where um, people um, have to make a decision about whether a road is adopted or not. And as soon as it's um, adopted, all of these turning circles and sweeps come in and it's basically game over. You don't get the density, you don't get the atmosphere. But then if you 
if you decide not to adopt it and create an, um, a, um, a site governance for that place, which um, legally ties you into um, delivering, you know, safe terrain, then very often what happens is that you you design it anyway, if as if it's adopted, because who knows what might happen in the future? It needs to be so. Th it's really pernicious this this legislation because there's um, I don't think people realize what an impact it has, you know, on, on so many things. Um, and it, I suppose what gives me a lot of um, hope and, you know, um, a feeling that, you know, with one jump we can be free is, is seeing all the rickshaws around in central London and seeing, like, imagining what London was like 20 years ago um, or even 30 years ago when I was on a bike and people used to just yell obscenities at me because I was on a bike on the road. You know, things can change, and I think that um, rubbish is one of them. And I think the main thing we have to do is front stage everything. I mean, I know in Southwark it gets a little bit, like, crazy. You have, like, um, literally plastic-lined streets, and you have to, you know, the width of the pavement gets cut down in some places at about 600. And then when you get to a lamppost, you know, to get around it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we have to, um, but in, in anywhere we can, we need to make something fabulous around bins, which is like the village well, which people come to, and where they can do swapsies and, and talk about waste and um, engage with compaction and actually boycotting certain businesses that sell stuff overpackaged or perhaps, um, you know, the whole... Um, market thing where you can just go with a string bag and you know take a lot of your food with no packaging i think that if we had a lot more markets and a lot more um bin celebrated bin kind of hangouts it would be good but isn't that quite exclusive the the idea that we should all be shopping in the farmer's market and the refill sites when you just go to aldi and you get the cheap stuff albeit as good as Waitrose these yeah, days. Yeah, but I mean, Aldi is also a business that has to, like, look after its image. So, you know, there is um, there is a climate crisis. There are young people coming through who are more bothered by it. And they're, they're, they're already doing things like putting farmer's markets at the front. It's like a pressure, isn't it? You have to. I guess it has to go both ways. We have a policy that's archaic that puts bin trucks in regardless of how much we're recycling. Anders was just telling me they're going to add another set of bins to the four that we already have, or five. So it's only going to get worse. That's not my choice. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. I didn't yeah, say. Yeah, but I mean, just to just to take it back to the consumer, that's the only place the pressure is going to come from. Ultimately, like you're going to need um, to um, penalise people who make more rubbish and incentivise them when they don't, like literally give them money. And, and change that economy, and then the consumer will feel in charge of it. At the moment, it's super top-down, I would say. So on that note, maybe we throw it open. Sorry, go for it, I was Chloe. just going to say, like, it's, it comes down to things like, you know, tax on smoking, tax on plastic bags. It's that doing something. It doesn't need to be that much. It just needs to be an amount that people associate with throwing away. And I think that will might not be the only thing you do, but I think that would start to change how people think about throwing things away quite radically. 
perhaps we reward people rather than find or penalize them. We flip Not it the other way. Not throwing things away. No. <laughs> <laughs> but for recycling or yeah, refusing. I, yeah, perhaps. I was thinking that you could do, like, in the same way as when people were trying to get people to not have cars in their developments, you would proudly stamp it saying this is a zero car development. You can say this is a zero waste development and we fund it. Yeah, and you therefore get a discount on your council tax or something as a result of that. don't know. Should we just throw it open to the floor about, about now? The consumers in the room who are making loads of rubbish? Hi, um, my name's Fiona Strollis. I've just got a few observations to make. Um, is there anyone from Veolia in the room? Okay, so a, a big disconnect is represented by the fact that such a big player who dictates its own terms and really doesn't care about the uh, humane interface with people on the sites it services is not part of this conversation. And I don't think we're going to get anywhere until there is real pressure on that part of the service chain to uh, get it and to be more responsive. Um, the second point that I'd like to make by way of Kenny's encouragement that things can be different is that I was in Venice two weekends ago and I happened, we had a picnic lunch and uh, one of our party carried the bag of, the small paper bag of refuse for two hours while we walked around and didn't pass a single bin. And yet... We didn't pass any litter at all. And I think that that is amazing. I mean, that was the singular impression that I came back from Venice with, apart from the fact that every single person on the Vaporetto did wear a mask. And if it slipped below their nose, someone did that and they raised it. The other singular impression was that there were no bins and no litter. And this is in a country that hasn't been able to keep a government stable since the Second World War. So, you know, there is a real culture of taking an interest. And the third thing is about consumer influence. Um, I just think it's very hard. You know, we celebrate choice in everything. The whole digital revolution's given us choice of everything and Domino's Pizza and Deliveroo and, 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 and. And... You know, who is going to tell people that they can't order a pizza in a box that goes down the chute, etc.? So I think we really need to co-opt our peers in industrial design to help innovate on letting people have the hotly delivered pizza now, if that's what they want, uh, but find other ways of delivering it. And the final thought is that our whole distribution system in London is still so massively underdeveloped for sustainability that there must be some sort of imaginative equivalent of, uh, you know, like last mile delivery or first mile refuse. And I think that those are creative lines to think on. Thank you. Um, effectively, what, we, what you're trying, you're saying is that uh, we need to encourage people to take an interest, ultimately. You know, we've all seen that guy or girl or person throw 
the thing out the car window and I've always wanting to throw it straight back in and you see those great memes or short videos of the guy kicking the door and then him getting sort of embarrassed and uh, a Tanis Mocus in um, Mexico City, no, uh, no, Bogota, used, used uh, they had a huge issue with um, antisocial driving, uh, people getting killed on the road, and so he employed mime artists to embarrass, play, excite, celebrate good drivers, embarrass bad drivers. Do we need to bring that into society with people who litter, people who fly tip? How do we bring that collective cultural shift? And I think humour is a good way of doing it, but perhaps someone else in the room has another idea. Well, for my money, I would start with uh, contracts from local authorities to refuse collectors and make them compete on decent ways of collecting rubbish from sites uh, because they call so many shots and um, I would... Uh, to put our legislation on companies like Amazon. So, you know, I would take it away from individuals and put it on the big corporates who wield the impact. It's not really working with our water management people, though, is it? So I don't know how we are going to get the wider environmental services to play um, going over that way. I can't. Um, kind of following on from Fiona's point is um, I've been to Japan a couple of times in the last five years and I notice their refuse trucks are about half the size of ours but they tend to only be crewed by one person and Japanese urban streets are quite narrow and, the and these trucks seem to fit in them very well so they've designed a completely different system of refuse collection that suits their urban environment so it's higher frequency but much smaller vehicles that don't because um, I'd like to know why are our refuse vehicles so enormous? Because they seem to be designed for Milton Keynes and not, and yet every city has to put up with the same size of refuse vehicle. You know, why can someone not come up with an urban version um, and rewrite the contract on that basis to say you can't use the big ones, come up with something smaller or perhaps each authority having something, choosing what they want or even commissioning, you know, something interesting. I think David will go to you with your report I, and then Anders yeah. afterwards from the council. I was, I was just going to take your, your first point on, on Viola and um, I did try and get in contact, or someone tried to get me in contact with Biffa to look at that, but I think I was going to use Amazon as an analogy for that. Well, actually an example, which is, um, I don't know if anyone noticed, but Amazon changed their entire fleet in London of delivery vans, so they're all electric. I think it was kind of two months ago and I, I swear they changed in about two weeks and I, I presume that's purely a response to ULES and they just took a commercial decision and said well we're gonna have to pay this much we'll upgrade our vans and we'll, we'll do it you know way quicker than raw mail or anyone else um and I think we, we you know a business their kind of main KPI is profit so we've got to probably accept that and and look at okay what policies can we change or what incentives can we change to to make them change, basically what we're saying is make them change their vehicles. And I guess that links to, I can quite see what you're saying, but you know, the second point of um, there's probably an opportunity right now as everyone's moving towards electrified vehicles. Can we get smaller electrified vehicles? And, and, you, and you're right. I mean, there's some, I saw a, a fire truck on Twitter the other day that's basically got rear axle turning, so you can have really tight radiuses. And this, this you know, the amount of road that this will reduce the need for is, is enormous. So, 
Um, you're right, it needs to be in sort of local authorities, procurement strategies, obviously these, that's difficult because some of them are like 20 years you know, long and you can't, you can't change anything. Um, but it's, I guess, it just comes back to, you know, design your tech. Well, we're going to have flying cars one day, but design your tech around your cities. Don't design your cities around your tech. Um, and we're not doing that at the moment because all the new places, like, like you said, are being designed for massive articulated bin lorries. I presume that's because you can have fewer collections, so it might be a little bit cheaper. But, you know, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, yes, it might be a bit more expensive, but the benefits that's going to get you in terms of more homes, more density, nicer places, places where we're all happier, it is worth it. Um, so I, I think it's looking at, yeah, looking at that procurement and um, writing the policy and incentive that will require these operators just to follow it because they will, you know, if, if they're going to get punished. Um, it's quite difficult to, to to compare cities with other cities due to social demographics, housing stock. Um, I was in Japan once and I was amazed that, that you could leave the bike outside and it wouldn't get stolen. So to me, that was just a behavior. It was completely different. It's quite a homogeneous society. So um, comparison is always quite difficult. And um, to benchmark ourselves with different with other countries is very difficult. I'm not. That's not to say that we shouldn't do similar things. Um, so I can't give you an answer with that. Also, because I'm not the operations manager. Um, my aspect is more behavior change and communications and strategies behind recycling. Um, but. <laughs> The why are the vehicles so big? I think they're all right, aren't they, Paul? Um, we have got smaller vehicles. Um, they do go to specific streets where they can't fit in. Um, and maybe I'm giving you bad ideas for you, for you uh, planning, building stuff. <laughs> but in terms of the actual um, the litter bins and the comment on, on Venice, I, I completely get that. If you have a bin, people will use it. So I've been always against my re other recycling team because I used to be a waste prevention officer. And I want to do an experiment where we leave a bin and it gets full. You take that bin out, it'll be empty. And, and I, di I did do that with a few times and that was actually the, what it happened. But then we get some specific residents who shout more than others and they get their way. Um, they complain to the councillor, to the mayor, and then they get their bin. But we do have some hotspots of litter and it tends to be on, on high roads. So we call it flats above shops, properties, the flash. Um, and those are very, very difficult to, to deal with. Um, we do have, there's a picture here. So it, as soon as you put a bin, you get, you get side waste. Um, and it'll be lovely for us not to provide bins. It'll be more, less work in a way. Um, it wouldn't go down well with the, the regulations of we need to provide recycling pro provisions to people. Um, so in short, yes, we should have less bins. Um, I will be keen to do that. In and we don't tend to have them on off streets. We do have them on high roads. Um, and I've been installing recycling litter bins um, and it's been quite a good experiment to see whether people actually use the recycling side of it for recycling. And the answer, they don't when they're drunk between Friday and Sunday. And I, I know that because I checked the bins myself. I opened them and I found bottles of things in there. You, you guys are eating now, so I don't want to put you off your, off your meal. Uh, but Monday to Thursday, recycling is clean. Friday to Saturday, Sunday, we need to throw it all away because it's completely mixed. People behavior changes when we drink. Um, 
but yes no bins please um then we can have more space for bikes um but it's really not going to happen in the immediate future there is new regulations coming in from the government so we the um uh, the recycling consistency, um, the deposit return scheme, all of this that coming in the next two to three years. But that's not going to stop the linear economy that we have. That's just going to encourage that greenwashing on recycling is good. What we need to do is to stop at source. We need to change the system. And we as consumers, uh, we need to tell um, you, your parties, usually email your MP tomorrow and say, I want you to do more about this, this and that. Um, they might hear it, they might not, but if everyone starts to demand it, we will get some changes. But we need to bring carbon tax, we need to incentivize, reduce VATs for repair and reuse and, and secondhand things. So that increases the market. But I'm guessing there's some people in the power of virgin materials, fossil fuel industries, business, those unethical businesses do not want that to be changed. And COP26 went one way. Um, we need to obviously keep pushing and I think we got quite a good fight um, and we're going to carry on. Jazz, do you want to add to that? Is it on now? Yeah. Um, the, the, a lot of the comments remind me of this episode from The Simpsons. I don't know if anyone's seen it where Homer runs to be like councillor in charge of bins and he gets elected on a manifesto that suggests the bin man is going to have like these immaculate uniforms. They'll take your rubbish out. They'll wash your dishes. They'll feed your cat. And um, he wins because it's an amazing manifesto. And then I think the, the council goes bankrupt within about 12 hours of him um, being in charge. And I think that the, the, the sort of serious point that underlines it is um, it's easy in some senses for Amazon to change their entire fleet overnight because they're backed by, you know, um, Jeff Bezos and, and come from a very different funding model. But the a lot of the reason we struggle with infrastructure and we struggle with, uh, you know, and bins is one and the collection of refuse, refuse is one manifestation of that is the kind of antagonistic relationship between central government and local government where like local government has become, I mean, it's always been, but more recently in the last you know, 11 years is basically like a whipping boy for, for, for funding cuts. So things that, um, cause you know, no one's going to win any campaign or get elected on more money for planners or local government. Like it's the literally the least popular ticket ever. And until we kind of rectify that and until we have properly funded local governments that can take, you know, um, proper decisions on on infrastructure planning, on on things like refuse collection, and be really progressive about policies and the way these things are put together. I think it's. I think we're only going to really have to rely on punitive measures for consumers, but that's only half of the solution. We have to look at putting in proper infrastructure, uh, which requires money. But imagine if somebody painted a picture of we're going to collect eighty percent reduction in terms of refuse collection what you could spend that money on like, you know whether it's when <laughs> but you know nobody's we haven't had that we never have that conversation about taxes where does our public money go i think everyone in this room probably does their best to recycle we're all a bit lazy and we probably put the thing in the wrong bit but ultimately in this room that's good but i know loads of people that can't be asked with it and you have these conversations about collective responsibility and have people like Anders who are sort of pushing boundaries on, on, on the recycling and the waste reduction. But 
it has to be a collective incentivization. I think you know, there was this playful thing a few years ago. VW did a kind of design competition and they rewarded people for driving at like a 20 mile hour limit and funded it through the people that didn't abide by the rules. And so how do you start to bring bag numbers down and how do you start to sort of celebrate those who are doing good and giving them a financial incentive? That's the only way I think we're going to do it. You can get a plasma screen with 0% this and have it on your wall in a day and not have to worry about paying for it. And then why would you worry about fixing it? You just buy another one and just continue perpetuating. And all the boxes and all the foam and all the bollocks that goes with it. Anyone here got any ideas how we actually incentivize people to do this? Because we've got to reduce it. We can't go policy because at the moment they're just going to carry on putting bin trucks through our systems until we go, we don't need bin trucks anymore or we need smaller trucks. You know, we're not Jeff Bezos. You know, I was in the Olympic Park yesterday. All their bins said, um, we don't care what you put in them, we'll deal with it for you. But that's a private entity. That's a development corporation. It's not Hackney Council who was running out of money, right? I tweeted, I think it was uh, Queen Elizabeth Park uh, and also to Hamlet, I got zero response. I'm guessing it's going to a dirty math, a dirty materials recycling facility, and the quality is practically shit. So you, you could do something with it, but I hopefully Tower Helen's on you, I'm not here, but I we don't go that way. We don't want to go down that way. It's easier for everyone, but it's, it, we're not doing anything with behavior change. Also, the quality is so bad that you hardly can use it. Hopefully, they are here. But I'm, I'm guessing they're not. I don't know if they were on the list, but they need to be in the room, right? If they're lying to everyone that goes to the park, saying, don't worry about it, if it's going to some dirty hole in the ground. I'm not usually someone for top-down, but I really disagree with you, Kenny. I think the only chance we have is a top-down, complete rules, no more styrofoam, no more plastic, company X, Y, Z, you just can't do it. You can't sell it from January the 1st. And that's the only, I mean, we can all do our bit and we do it all, but it's not going to, it has to be a rule. And like, I mean, it's a very tenuous comparison, but when there was no more smoking in pubs, there was like a month of uproar and everyone went, you know what, actually it's quite nice, isn't it? It's just so, sort of, we need, it's the only way it has to be top down. Yeah. Top-down policy, definitely good. I meant really that the, the, the streets were um, controlled by design guides that um, had fossilized systems in it. I just wanted to ask anybody in the room whether they thought that we have to keep collecting rubbish and taking it somewhere else, or whether we should start thinking, um, going back to the kind of, I don't know how long it was, 1940s or something, where everybody just dealt with their own rubbish um, it either, they either rotted it down or they burnt it in kind of their galvanized bins. Um, you know, probably it was quite maggoty. You know, we, we live in a much kind of like slicker society, but it, it has to be possible. Now we're thinking much more about micro power generation um, to think about it on a, on a small neighborhood scale because we've tried to do schemes where you, um, you say, no, it's okay you don't need to bring a car close and you don't need to take your rubbish because we have wheelbarrows and wheelbarrows are kind of a good technology. I was just 
<clears throat> just wondering about um, architectural solutions as well. I was just wondering if anyone in the panel or the audience had found clever, innovative ways, you know, when they're, when they're being pushed around uh, by bin lorries that they actually said, well, no, actually, well, we, we managed to change local policy or we managed to create a building which got round um, a bin issue. I think that's the magic question. Take that it? as a no, I guess. <laughs> I noticed Deborah's here, um, one of our, our clients. And I was talking to Deborah today, and we, 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 um, we had a situation on a couple of sites where the Hounslow bin policy was so difficult for small flatted developments where you ended up being about 10 times over capacity for five flats or around, yeah if you followed policy. So what we kind of um, were able to do, courtesy of, of, of Deborah's relationship with Hounslow and good negotiation with, with the housing department, was basically look at a bin store solution that um, enabled a new bin store for the whole community. Um, so it was a, a more efficient, safer, capacity all worked for a whole surrounding community rather than having it all combined into the one flatted, small flatted development where if you had to work with policy it became almost impossible because the policy is based on house and house types and larger developments rather than small flatted. So that's a solution, sort of try and combine things for the local community. Well that sounds like you're working outside your red line and that again is another tricky issue that we all have to deal with on a daily basis giving parks to other places you know it's the same deal right you're creating more people in a place so you need more social infrastructure but i think that's a really interesting way of creating a centralized bin space that accommodates the existing and local to have a hub but like canny's sort of wishing well of rubbish that you kind of <laughs> not yet oh, here yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Eleanor. And 20 years ago, I was working for Peabody, and I, I'm slightly obsessed with bins and bin stores, and, and I still think one of my greatest moments was on Peabody Trust's first design guide. I'm looking across to Claire. Um, we had a bin store. We managed to get a bin store on the front page, in the front sort of like cover. Um, and, and I was thinking about, about what Steve, Steve was saying, about, about how you sort of like can change things. And, one of my first um, sort of experiences of having to do POE and actually have to go and talk to residents about what they thought about what was happening was at, was at Bedzed. And, and we had, at the time, what I had thought were really horrible bin stores because they were sort of like in the sun, as you... As, sorry, they were sort of like, you know, outside the front doors and, and the sort of like the sun was there and they were sort of... I kept thinking, why could we not have had some green planting? You know, they really, really annoyed me. Um, and having to go and talk to residents about what, what they were sort of thinking about it, um, one sort of set, sat down and I sort of said, oh, so what do you like and what do you like, don't like? And they went, oh, God, I hate the bin stores. I said, yes, yes, yes. You know, here's some, here's some stuff I can get. And they said, oh, you've no idea. It takes so long to sort of like put the bins, because everybody's there. It's the place. It's a canny, as you said. It, it it is. It was the place where everybody gathered. It was like, oh, I go down to sort of like drop my, my waste off when I go, and then you end up chatting to everybody, and and so I think I think there's something about that 
alternative use. And, and, and that's what I think is really interesting about a lot of the ideas which are coming through with, you know, last mile delivery about how can we, how can we make places for people to sort of like to gather? So, so sadly, if anybody's interested, um, on my phone, I do actually probably have 20 years of photos of some quite nicely designed bid stores, but actually thinking that sometimes, sometimes we do have to think that maybe they need to be put in the really desirable places in the scheme. Because that's where people want to gather. Like the front cover of Vogue, perhaps? Or, yes. You know, Louis Vuitton are doing a rewilding project in West London. It's 240 square metres, but it is getting paper coverage all over the shop. So what about putting the recycling bins in that forum and giving it to Kanye West or whoever is influencing the, the use of today? Because, you know, that's some of what we have to widen it to a bigger audience. And so... Make it uh, on the sunny side of the building. I was, I was going to ask, has anyone been to the Maulings in Oosburn? In Oosburn, the Maulings, um, it's an igloo project, uh, co yeah, co-housing one in Newcastle. And they've done that where they've basically, they've got communal bin storage in the centre, um, pedestrian access only. And it's basically sort of, it's like their park. And I always thought it was a bit, a bit weird, but maybe that's the right approach to sort of have it in the middle. And I, I just, I thought I'd kind of pick up on... I have to say that is mine. Yeah. All right. <laughs> there we go. You want to go? You want to go and have a look at the communal, communal bins in the centre? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's um, there's a tap. Sorry, there's a tap to wash down everything. People do um, connect it really with the with their communal yeah. space because it's like a triangle, and there's a kind of bit to hang over the river. There's a bit to play ping pong, and then there's a bit. Of rubbish we, we were there, sort of taking photos of someone's house because we were like, this is quite cool, and. She came out just like, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? And then actually she was so proud she like invited us in and that you've got the basically allotments in the back, which are really cool. And um, so we, yeah, we've used that for inspiration for one of our other ones. But actually yeah, trying to use that communal, I mean, communal bins is one of the solutions to this and it can be cheaper, but you've got to go over the kind of like anecdotal arguments against it of the, oh, well, everyone wants to own their own bin. And it's like, really? Is that, you know, is that, you know, some of these kind of, um, biases that you might have from an individual councillor and actually they're some of the blockers you know as opposed to um, you know the policy or the costs and I think I just kind of kind of want to pick up on the cost of you know okay we use sort of like Amazon for you know updating their vehicles I mean the reason they're they're you know most profitable company in the world is because they they really are cost focused so they're you know they're not sort of doing that over uh, the goodness of their heart but I think in terms of I think we should ask for a lot smaller vehicles. We should ask for um, these vehicles that can help us change our streets because, yeah, we, yes, they, well, they might not actually cost that much more, but let's say it did cost a bit more. How much the, the cost that I think everyone just ignores when we're designing places is road infrastructure. And it's just seen as this, like, yeah, you have to do it. But if you look at Section 106 and the SIL and all the, the land value capture money and actually realise how much is going towards roads, you know, we're, we're talking sort of like, 40% of your entire local authority budget in some areas. If you can, you know, shrink those roads or, or, or maybe do away with them where you don't need them, I, I think we can afford that. I think local authorities, I think there is a big pot of money that is being just almost like so in your face that it's overlooked. The lady in the striped scarf over there. Sorry to make you run, Rob. Is there anyone else we want to line up on the... It will be my last comment. So, um, 
I think you've been too easy on local authorities because they're resource strapped. It does not cost money to be imaginative and to be joined up and to be future oriented in setting your procurement criteria. So, you know, please, can we kind of get real about the fact that they are a major lever for change that would affect so many people? And the second point that I want to make is that I did a series of uh, post-occupancy studies at Chiswick Park, also in Hounslow. And the first one that I did was before the congestion zone was embedded. And quite a lot of people on the who responded, who were interviewed in the study, talked about, you know, how dumb it was that there was so little car parking provision on the site. In fact, the site had the maximum allowable parking consent, but as uh, people who worked on site, they didn't appreciate that. And then we did our next study uh, after the congestion charge had become uh, uh, implemented. And so people's entire expectations of how they were going to travel to work had changed. And in that second study, there was only one person who commented about the car parking ratio. And then when we did our third study, which was some years down the line, not a single person commented about it. And I always take that as a very powerful uh, reference to top-down driven behavioral change and expectations. So I think there's everything to play for uh, to move from the top. Um, Thank you. Chloe, you worked at the council. Should we get real and hold them to account? Um, yes, um, but I do think, I mean, where, where do I start with? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, I think, yeah, just coming back to your point about, you know, good ideas don't cost anything. I think that is absolutely true. But when you've got a cost-strapped local authority, you've got loads of people within those organisations who've got loads of amazing ideas. But actually, you know, the whole organisation is struggling from funding from national government to be able to actually just do the statutory things that they're required to do. So somebody might come up with a brilliant idea, but actually then putting it into action at, that's above and beyond their minimum service is actually really, really difficult to enact and to get everybody and all the various different departments to actually do it. <laughs> Looking at Anders, <laughs> um, I think it is really difficult, but I do think local authorities, they can start to become thought leaders in it, even if they don't necessarily enact something, they can start to talk about it. And I think national level government really needs, like coming back to your point about saying, just ban polystyrene, because I don't think it will even be like the smoking ban. I think most people want, don't want polystyrene anymore. It's kind of, it's not, nobody sees it as their God-given right to have their TV wrapped in polystyrene. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I think it's really difficult. Um, I mean, you put it a lot more simpler than I was going to say but we have got 10 million pounds savings a year for the last 14, 10 years uh, whenever austerity started it's been so long I forgot um, we now need to introduce climate change action plan and that's going to cost a fortune so now they're telling us we have no money to do any of this so to, to say whether we need to be manunitive, I think 
I think everything is possible. And I think climate change is, is the lack of imagination. So to be able to fix the, the ones and the positives of, of planning guidance and, and that interaction with, with public realm, it is possible. It, it's just like you said, it's to do with that resource to be able to implement them. So you need that program man manager. And to do that, you need to build a business case. To do that, you need money. And we just need to deliver a lot of statutory obligations that we we barely, nearly doing them. And we also, after doing them, we also need to perf perform them, monitoring them, evaluation. If we don't do them, we're going to be criticized. We get FOIs. A lot of times we spend, I would say, maybe five hours on one single FOI, <clears throat> which is a great thing. It's democracy and transparency, but it, it creates quite a lot of, um, I'll say, administration burden on, on us. But that is the society we live in. And I think positive things that I've learned through FOIs that I didn't know because I have to ask a whole thing of department. So in short, it is possible. We just don't have the money. Um, and we need millions and millions of pounds for climate change action plan. Um, and all the money is going at the moment is electric vehicles and more roads for them, which I think I'm not entirely sure that's right either. <laughs> Hiya. Um, so I just wanted to kind of, um, I was excited by that idea of bins as fun, exciting places because thinking about asset management, they're horrible, dirty places. So this is anecdotal, but it happens a lot and uh, antisocial behavior, you know, you have bins being used as toilets. We had a bin store that we couldn't work out why mattresses kept getting dumped in there, but actually there was someone waiting outside and it was being used as a, essentially a brothel, a pretty low budget brothel. Then you have it in a more central position. We had one in a courtyard and people were throwing their, their bins out, out, out the top so that they could just go straight in so they didn't have to take it. Forget about this 10 meters, 20 meters straight out the top but of course everyone who had a garden or the, the path underneath was just getting strewn with rubbish so when i think about them i think about them as really negative horrible a problem you know some pretty horrible things go on there and happen there and and i just wondered if you could maybe expand more on how we can make them to, to joyous places that aren't being used for sex or shit <laughs> <laughs> Honey. Trees around, uh, sorry, trees are pretty useful in in terms of like um, making um, a place look like a garden that happens to have some bins in it, rather than being a, um, a kind of arse end of a of an estate or a or a building. So I think it's um, it's a curation job, but I I take your point. I think it's like also just talking about it a lot more and maybe um, it's young children seem to know a lot about it I mean there's a pop-up book that my nephew's got it's his favorite thing has been for about three years and it's just about what happens to rubbish and it's really detailed and he's got all the vocabulary it's very impressive about sorting and grading and um, the techniques for actually crushing compacting um, smelting and melting it's, it's brilliant if i could just maybe come back and I actually just it made me think that actually part of the reason in some ways that they're so dirty is because of the mix there you know organic waste in there is what makes it smelly and dirty and actually if we were getting better at separating that like little kids know then actually paper waste isn't filthy and dirty and perhaps we just have one little little dirty bit that's useful sorts of things 
could we go back to the Bazalgette model of the sort of temples of poo and how and celebrate them as these cathedrals of waste? And you were telling me earlier about these sort of beautiful bin stores in Croydon, Chloe. Oh yeah. <laughs> Not ones I've designed, but they're amazing. I mean, it wasn't what I was about to say, but I was going to say maybe they, like, just coming back to making the bin stores um, kind of these places that you that are desirable to go, maybe it's changing the premise of them. Maybe they become these places that you can go and swap things. You know, it's first and foremost a swap shop, and then there's also the bit that you can't, you know, it, it does need to go to landfill or whatever, or not does need to go and be processed, but... You know, you know, you can make it go around people's other people's bin stores and scout DIY materials and, and things like that. But anyway, maybe that's a bit too pie in the sky. But um, yeah, bin stores in Croydon. There's an, there's some. I don't even know what era they're from, but somebody designed the most amazing, the impractical bin store that got rolled out across a whole. I don't even know how many there are, but there must be hundreds of them um, that are just kind of rolled out like marbles and they're built out of kind of really nice brickwork with really nice curved brick details on them it's always four bricks wide four four bin holes wide with some nice steps up to them which are really useful to slot your <laughs> to slot your rubbish bag through something that's about 400 kind of mil high um and they're just kind of scattered on estates all over the borough and you're just like somebody designed it really beautifully and then somebody obviously had a contract to build them but, but like they're now surplus to requirement and you can't you, nobody uses them anymore because the bins don't go in them and you can't get rubbish in them so they're brilliant no they're just amazing in terms of the fact they're not brilliant <laughs> they're rubbish in fact there you go there's my puns back they're not even big enough for that. You can't even get in them. So we're just going to go to the lady in the stripes, and then I think there's someone over the back there, Hi. second. Um, I had a, a question for the panel, which was, um, are there any examples that you have where architectural solutions have shifted social norms more generally that could be instructive to recycling? Jess, you want that one? <laughs> um I, I don't know if it constitutes an architectural solution, but I do know in, um, I think in Cambridge, some of the new development there, there is integrated, they, they thought about waste um, waste disposal from the offset. So you've got everything underground. So you, you go into the public realm, you, you put out your rubbish, and then it's all networked in from the bottom. And it's a good example about how to do proper infrastructure planning from the offset. Think about it from conception, not just as an afterthought to sort of, you know, once you've got everything everything going. So it's not, it is a design solution. It's probably not an architectural solution. Um, but going back to the comment earlier about people throwing their rubbish over the garden into the bin, I mean, part of me thinks that, that sounds like a really fun game, but a bigger part thinks that it speaks to a, a sort of issue about why people don't have pride in their own housing development and pride in their own place and and i think the solutions to that are architectural so whilst you you might find that um you know you still could have a convoluted relationship in terms of how to dispose of your rubbish there there should be one would hope that as designers we're able to create environments create relationships where people feel adequate responsibility and ownership for their immediate public realm um and i, d I don't know the sort of 
specifics of the development you're talking about, but it feels like the the game about throwing the rubbish is more a symptom of a wider issue rather than um, bins being sort of poorly designed in themselves. I think if we can create developments that people are, are proud of and people feel that I'm, I want to take care of the semi-private space, the semi-public space, because it's my space, it represents me, um, you know, I, I, I own that and I need to kind of contribute to its maintenance, then I think these things are less complex because people will go that extra mile to kind of um, to keep things tidy. Jump in here, a sneaky thing on the way to you, <laughs> um, which is that, you know, it's cycling through London at the moment, it's pretty inspiring. Like there's so many more outdoor gathering places. It's tremendous. And I was always puzzled why we didn't have more beer gardens, you know? Like, why why do we have to be so family unfriendly and why can't we we bring commerce into parks? But it's all happening. And the microbreweries and the and the, 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 the food um, courts, they're all um, becoming part of uh, our social infrastructure. And I think it's... It, it's what you're saying. I mean, I think we can design things. You know, we can go to Drummond Street now and um, sit out and eat under colourful awnings that, um, you know, we, we, we couldn't do before because people are just getting it, I think. Aren't they quite exclusive, though? Because you've got to pay for them. You've got to have a flat white or a craft beer or a burger. And How do you... Well, I want to bring my own sandwich. And None of those things are sold on Drummond Street. <laughs> well, no, oh, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, so I just wanted to go back to the point about 10 minutes ago, um, talking about local authorities. And, and I don't think it is an officer issue. It's about leadership and it's about political leadership and chief executives. But actually in London, I've always wondered, and particularly with the London plan, which has become increasingly detailed and particular in its policy, why do we have 30-odd local authorities with each of their own waste policies? And why don't we have one for London? And actually, why isn't there a single UK-wide <laughs> waste policy? Because I'm telling you, if you go up to Scotland and you order a recycling bin for some flats... There's just it just doesn't exist. They don't do recycling for flats in Scotland, not south of Glasgow. They don't. So I think that should all change. David, you wrote the report. How many of the thirty-three boroughs of London? How many of the chief execs and leaders have come to you and said, "Good work. Let's 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 make affect the change. Get rid of the bin trucks." There might be in the junk mail. I'm, I'm not sure if I've seen those so far. I mean, um, we, we do, we're doing street design at the moment in, in Surrey and actually it's, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of the elected officials putting pressure on creating more walkable places more. Um, it's quite interesting that actually sort of rethinking the KPI. Maybe this is the, the kind of main point really is rethinking the KPIs. Like 
people will sort of try and optimize for what they're told to do or you know what what they're incentivized to do and rather than just seeing your your streets or your waste as being you know collecting how much per hour per day or whatever it might be what if you have things like well-being health sustainability in your kpis for for your your officials um and that and that will need political kind of pressure or that will need political leadership to do that because you know you can't really expect officials to set their own kpis so i think that that's what we've seen coming in right from the top there um not working with sort of any of the london boroughs on that but i think maybe that's what we need in terms of a london plan which is you know setting setting almost like hierarchies and, and pyramids of needs and you know where you i don't know if people have seen the kind of inverted pyramid of modal shift or basically transport where you've got like pedestrians wheelchair users cyclists and then goes down through public transport and then you've got a car at the bottom you can kind of have that for for bins as well where you have people that are all the way down and then it's like the bin lorry is actually near the bottom maybe some of the waste management might disagree with that but you know if you follow that kind of principle of what are we designing this place for you can apply it to waste as well well i think one more go on then I don't think this is a, a particularly positive note to um, to end on, so I apologise. But um, just to, to discuss the scale of the challenge, we have uh, eight bin lorries that go out um, every day on street level. They pick up um, 10 tonnes of rubbish, which is about 2,000 um, bags. They go and tip on some rounds and come back and do the same. Uh, we have five recycling trucks that go out six days a week. Um, three or uh, four food trucks that go out um, five days a week. That's on street level. And then we have 10 uh, RCVs that go out to estates, and some of those tip twice. And then we have another um, five or six recycling trucks for estates. So, and then another three food waste for estates. Um, sorry, I work with Ander and, and Hackney. So we... Um, so you're a transport geek. You're just, <laughs> <laughs> just count them as they go back. Um, so in terms of reducing the size of the trucks, so we, if you reduce them by half, you double the number of trucks that you need, um, and they have to go and tip, and they queue to get into the, well, not the tip, the incinerator. So they queue. Um, so I, I do agree that it would be great if we could reduce the size of the trucks, the number of trucks, but we need to first reduce the amount of waste and recycling that we're producing before it's like a chicken and egg situation. Um, how, do you, how do you design something for something that isn't the reality? Um, that's down to you guys. Can I just add on a positive note? Thanks, Steve. Thank you. I'm a Hackney resident, and it's a lot better on Tower Hamlets. It's clean. We can do recycling properly. So don't cut your trucks. Any more puns, Chloe, before we close? My only one that I haven't... Well, I've got a couple, actually, that I haven't used. Um, but I was going to finish with, I'm only happy when it rains, and leave it like that. Cool. I'd just like to thank the guys who've organised it. The speakers, all of you guys, um, I'm sure there's some more free-flowing Negronis and beer and whatever to keep talking rubbish. Um, thanks very much. Thanks to Hugh. Yeah, just quickly, just, just quickly to say, dessert is on its way.
um, and uh, yeah, stay for as long as you want. Um, we'll be picking up in the new year with another five that we have mapped out. So uh, an increased regularity, hopefully. So uh, we're thinking sort of every three or so weeks, possibly, Rob. But um, yeah, um, thanks very much to everybody for coming. And um, finally, thanks to say to Will, thank you very much for chairing. To Ander, Kenny, uh, David, Chloe, and Jazz. Jazz. Sorry, I knew I'd get that wrong. I said myself, Jazz, Jazz, Jazz. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.